Welcome to the Citizens Report. It's the 23rd of April 2021. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by the Citizens Party's Victoria State Chairman Jeremy Beck. Welcome Jeremy. Thanks Robbie. In this week's Citizens Report, is terrorism against some now acceptable in Canberra? And the true cost of net zero? Before we begin though, quick update well, I mean, we're going to do a, a actually very serious show today. I mean, every, every show is serious, I would say, argue, Jeremy, but this one has a, quite a serious subject. Um, uh, so we'll get to that in a minute. But I do want to do a quick update on the Australia Post campaign because there's, there's been incredible developments. So we just can't spend every show on it every week. Um, the, main, the most important one is yesterday. So today's Friday. Yesterday, Thursday, uh, Josh Frydenberg at a public event was asked about Christine Holgate and he claimed ownership of the banking deal for which the watchers were rewards. Now this about is a, time. <laughs> a, absolutely about time. I was like, oh. why couldn't he have done it at the time? He actually he actually revealed, he was happy to reveal to the audience at this event, reported in the paper, that he worked with Christine Holgate on it. He made the calls to the bank executives that brought them to the table. That is the truth. So he knows that. He knows how much how close it came for, the, for this not to work and for regional communities in Australia to lose their banking services because if the, if the banks hadn't have done the deal, Australia Post was going to scrap banking services at post offices. It was too expensive for them. He knows that. He knows what it meant. He knows what it meant to... He, he remembers how emotional Christine Holgate was about. We've played that clip on our show when she announced the deal. That was the context for the watches. In that context, the $5,000 per watch... Um, given how much work went into it was um, uh, you know, completely appropriate, right? Some, a reward had to be made. He knows that, yet when, he was attacked, when she was attacked for the watches, he sat there and said nothing. Why is he saying something now? Because the winds, Jeremy, have shifted and he's trying to be on the right side of it. That's thanks to our campaign, right? So this isn't over yet. Um, second thing I want to update on is, is the... the uh, Kimberly Kitching, who we showed last week attacking me in the hearings, um, and, I, and, I, and she was wearing white, which I call camouflage. And in fact, you can, um, if you haven't already received a copy, you can call in and get a free copy of uh, this week's uh, issue of our latest Australian Alert Service, where we have two articles, um, one called Holgate Assassin Number 1, Kimberly Kitching, Holgate Assassin Number 2, Scott Morrison, Mr. Caveat Emptor. I wrote the one on Kimberly Kitching. Jeremy wrote the one on uh, Scott Morrison, which he did a few years ago. We've republished it because you need to know a bit about these politicians. Um, she goes on Sky News uh, last night and her facade has, has cracked, Jeremy. She's no longer um, trying to pretend she's on Christine Holgate's side. Right? She was just doubling down on her moral, self-righteous condemnation of the watchers, the watchers, the watchers. It's not about the watchers. And... Um, I suggest everyone look at the latest video the Citizens Party has put out um, on that, which is called Exposing the Lies. Um, it's a 10-minute video. It's worth watching. We go through everything that the, Scott Morrison and his ministers and people on the other side like Stephen Conroy have said since last week's testimony, and we've, we've smashed it with the actual facts of the case. So it's worth 
uh, watching that as a uh, as a brush up. So anyway, her facade has cracked and she's she's uh, she can't keep up the pretense that suddenly she's on Christine Holgate's side because questions still need to be asked why she why she went back two years to dig up this issue. Uh, to find a pretext to hit Christine Holgate for and make it sound like, you know, that, like as Al Anthony Albanese did, that this was something that happened in the pandemic recession, right? What was her agenda really? Um, and finally on that, uh, Jeremy, um, the next hearing is coming up, to, so today's Friday, the next hearing is coming up on Tuesday in Canberra next week. I'll be there for it again. Um, this time the board is being called to testify as well as the licensed post officers group and the union. But it's, very, it's going to be very interesting what the board has to say because their role in this has been abominable. They, 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 they must be in some sort of trouble having failed in their duties as a board. That's all I can say. So listen, with that, we're going to take a break. Um, and when we come back, we will get onto a very serious subject. Welcome back to the Citizens Report. Now for a very serious topic. Is terrorism against some now acceptable in Canberra? Well, let me start by saying, hypocrisy, thy name is Western foreign policy. And that's been true for a long time, but it's certainly true in the case of this subject we're about to talk about. So Jeremy, we are now 20 years into the war on terror, pretty much, right? It's 2021, and of course, the September 11 terrorist attack was 2001, this coming September. Um, and it's defined our lives, right, this, this, this era. So we know what the war on terror is, we've lived through it. Suddenly, however, there's a brand of terrorism that seems to be acceptable in the Western corridors of power, including in Canberra. And that is the terrorism that kills Chinese people. Now, we are going to talk about this because I want my fellow Australians, the watchers of the show, to just stop and think for a minute what this means, that um, there's a sense that when terrorism is directed against Chinese people, there's either excuses for it or it doesn't matter. Terrorism is never acceptable. Never. Terrorism that kills innocent, targeted against innocent civilians is never acceptable. I accept there's reasons for it, there's no excuses for it, right? And this is the kind of terrorism that we're talking about. So over the last decade, China has suffered the worst wave of terrorism in the Western world, that, essentially the worst wave of terrorism outside of the Middle East and North Africa. And of course, unfortunately, the Middle East and Africa, I mean, they're terrorism basket cases, right? It's, it's so common there that people stop thinking about it. But outside of that, you've had a terrible wave in France, which has been the worst in the Western world, right? The death toll of, the Fr of French terrorist attacks in the last 10 years is 282 people. That's how many people have died in French terrorist attacks. In China, in, the, in a decade, up to 2017, 796 people were killed in terrorist attacks. And they're mainly killed in the um, province of Xinjiang, or the region of Xinjiang. Um, and that's the region everyone's been talking about lately, right? We'll get onto that in a minute. Um, the, the victims of these terrorist attacks are not just Han Chinese people who live in Xinjiang. They include Uyghur Muslims 
as well. Plenty of them have died in these terrorist attacks. They're just not radical jihadists like the people committing um, these attacks. However, when this is reported in the West, there's always caveats. Um, there's, there's, there's usually some kind of commentary as if implying China did something to deserve it. Now, I get people asking that question, Jeremy, but do you ever see the Western media saying that about terrorist attacks against, say, the United States, which is literally bombing people into the Stone Age in the Middle East on a daily basis? Does anyone say, oh, when a, when a, when a Muslim in America commits a terrorist attack, that may be deserved? That would be complete outrage. Absolute and, outrage. And when you consider the context of it all, the, the war against Iraq was based on a pack of lies, weapons of mass destruction that did not exist. And one million Iraqis, innocent Iraqis, have been killed in that war. So if there's a movement of Iraqis that felt justified in committing terrorist attacks in the United States in retaliation, what would Americans think? And if, if we justified them, what would Americans think? Right? But that is what happens when it comes to terrorist attacks uh, in China. It happens way too much. All right, the main perpetrator of these terrorist attacks is an organisation called the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, which is also known as the Turkestan Islamic Party. And I'm going to play a clip now of a US Air Force Major General James Hecker. This is from a September, sorry, a 7th of February 2018 briefing on US air strikes that have just been conducted in Afghanistan. Watch this. Over the past weekend, United States forces conducted air operations to strike Taliban and East Turkestan Islamic Movement, or ETIM, training facilities in Badakhshan province. The destruction of these training facilities prevent terrorists from planning any acts near the border with China and Tajikistan. The strikes also destroyed stolen Afghan National Army vehicles and the process of being converted to vehicle-borne imp improvised explosive devices. One brief note on ETIM, which I just mentioned. They are a terrorist organization that operates in China and the border regions of Afghanistan. ETIM enjoys support from the Taliban in the mountains of Badakhshan. So hitting these Taliban training facilities and squeezing the Taliban support networks degrades ETIM capabilities. So that's crystal clear. The East Turkestan Islamic Movement exists, is a threat, and they bombed them. Yet, two years later, two and a half years later, on the 6th of November 2020, one of the most single most repulsive politicians in the West in memory, US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, a racist bore, a CIA liar, he, knowing they'd just lost the election, which he was still denying, he took that terrorist organisation, named in that briefing, off the United States State Department's terrorism list, list of designated terrorist organisations, and he said that's because there's no evidence they exist. Yeah, he's a straight out liar. So who the hell was the Pentagon bombing in Afghanistan two years earlier, right? What does China think when the US Secretary of State does that? That's, that's what you've got to understand when you're thinking about all this one-sided reporting against China, right? Um, so here's, we've intervened in this, Jeremy, because I think it's gone way too far. Uh, it's in the context of all the accusations now where this word genocide is being thrown around, where people are equating it with the Holocaust, where six million Jews were incinerated and gassed, 
they're happily equating it with that and it has no resemblance to anything like that in a million years. It's so far from that it's not possible. Yet the same people who say nothing's comparable to the Holocaust are happily comparing it to the Holocaust because it's China uh, doing it. So we have taken this on. We've just published an article in our Australian Alert Service, which again people can call in and get a copy of. And it's called, the headline of the article is, um, bear with me, Australian politicians back East Turkestan terrorism apologists. Let me just go through some of the details quickly. This article quotes how um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an organisation based in Washington called the East Turkestan Government in Exile. This is a self-proclaimed government in exile. And America does this all the time. They put, they, they, they put up a government in exile to, uh, um, in Iraq, right, before the attack on Iraq. They've got a government in exile in Syria and all this kind of stuff. They do all this all the time. Um, but the, the self-styled prime minister of this government in exile, he also, like Mike Pompeo, claims that the EIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, doesn't exist. But then he, then he admits the Turkestan Islamic Party does exist, even though the British ban them both as the same organisation, just multiple names of the same organisation. He admits the Turkestan Islamic Party is a terrorist organisation. But then he tweeted this in 2017. And let me just read you the tweet that he put out in 2017 in response to a tweet about the Turkestan Islamic Party in Syria waging jihad alongside ISIS and Al-Qaeda. He wrote, It's quite sad to see the majority of the Uyghur fighters are naive and think they are fighting in the path of Allah, when in reality they are fighting for interests of foreign governments, such as the one in the country he lives, Washington, that supply them with the funding and arms, whereas their real enemy lies in East Turkestan. In other words, this gentleman is calling for those head choppers over there in Syria to return back to China and kill people there. That's what he did. Well, that man is heavily promoted on the website of an Adelaide-based organisation called the East Turkestan uh, Association... Uh, sorry, the East Turkestan Australian Association... This organisation is heavily promoted by Australian politicians such as Senator Rex Patrick, who is obviously, as a South Australian senator, is obviously lobbied by them, as well as uh, a minister in the, in the, um, in the uh, Morrison government, Andrew Hastie. Andrew Hastie, who himself is, is, is accused of being Islamophobic, except his Sinophobia trumps his Islamophobia. Um, you've got other people involved in promoting this organisation as well. So we have exposed it in this publication. We're going to take a quick break and continue this after the break. So welcome back to the Citizens Report where we are discussing is terrorism against some now acceptable in Canberra? And we're highlighting the East Turkestan Australian Association which through its website and its association is, known, is associated with known extremists including this Prime Minister of the East Turkestan government in exile based in Washington, D.C., who has called for jihadists in Syria to return to, to wage their jihad in um, China. And there's other, there's other actual extremists that this Adelaide-based group promotes on its website, including preachers, uh, Islamic extremist preachers, who are banned from the United Kingdom and many other countries for their preaching. Right, They're, they're heavily promoted on their website. We're highlighting this because any other Muslim group in Australia, Jeremy, and we know because we, we, Jeremy and I spent 20 years, especially 20 years ago, when John Howard 
um, uh, unveiled his anti-terrorism laws, we spent, 20, we spent those years defending Muslim groups against those terrorism laws because they were there to imply everyone was a terrorist. And we were saying, no, 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 no. And so what that taught us, though, is that these organisations come under extreme scrutiny for their links. And any Muslim group in Australia with these links would, be, would come under extreme scrutiny, would get raided by ASIO. Yet this group gets a free pass. Why? Because they're anti-China. And so let me end on this. Just think for a second. I mean, China's our biggest trading partner. China's never done anything to us. I've gone through all the statistics a million times on the show. They're not buying up Australia. They're a tiny foreign investor in Australia, despite what the Daily Mail and the Australian newspaper tell you. It's all, it's all designed to whip you up. We've just, we've just sold out our foreign policy to Mike Pompeo because he, that bore was the guy who said Victoria should scrap its Belt and Road Agreement. Now the Australian newspaper today admits the Belt and Road Agreement was purely symbolic. It had no practical effect in Victoria at all, right? Yet you've got to rip it up because we're, we're sucking up to the United States. So we're sending this message to China every, every which way we can that, that we hate them now. Now we're sending a message, though, just understand this, that... Um, by giving this organisation a free pass, that we don't care if terrorist attacks happen in their country that kills their people, right? And this is something Australians need to consider because you want to make an enemy of a country? Well, go right ahead with what we're doing. Any comments, Jeremy? Uh, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful. Uh, you know, terrorism's terrorism, no doubt about it. Uh, if, if you think about <coughs> this Belt and Road Agreement that the Victorian government signed up to, it, it's something that could have given us a lot of jobs and helped us develop nations. Think about the, the development that can end terrorism. If people have a mission in yeah. their life, you Good know, they, they won't get sucked into these radical groups. They'll be actually building something, building high-speed trains or ports or you know, communications networks. It, it's amazing what we could do to unite the world in these growth projects. Well, and bear and in, in mind... Yeah, it's bear, crazy. No, uh, Jeremy, that's an excellent point. Bear in mind, we, sh we just showed you the, the American military saying they bombed them on their side of the border in Afghanistan. On China's side of the border, they're trying to educate them and, and reduce poverty through development. Exactly. And they're being accused of genocide. Just one last comment on this particular group. They are the main source of the claims of Chinese persecution against Uyghurs you cannot rule out that there may be a reason for China to be suspicious of who they are and their activities, given everything I've just told you. And Australia would not tolerate people talking like that about us, and we're prepared to be heavy-handed. We lock people up on islands in the Pacific indefinitely if, we can, if we're scared of them, right? Just you know, bear that in mind. Okay, so I urge people, for more information, call in and get a copy of this latest issue of the Alert Service on this or get on the website where we just put out a press release on it today linking to it. All right, so Jeremy, let's get on to the next subject now. The true cost of net zero. Everyone's familiar with this term. It's become the, the, the big issue. We've got to inject some reality into this. We're going to play a clip of India's energy minister at an event um, on the whole climate change stuff just the other day. Watch this. But when you talk about the challenges before us together, as humanity. Now, that is something else again. Now, that is something about on which we need to ponder. And we need to ponder on that very honestly. Uh, because absolutely, you know, we can uh, uh, obfuscate and things like that. But that is not going to make the problem go away. You have countries which are, uh, you know, whose per capita emissions are four times, five times, six times, 12 times the world average. 
Now the question is, when are they going to come down? Where are these emissions of these uh, countries who have who are emitting seven times, twelve times the world average? Where are they going to bring down their emissions? Now we, what we hear is that by 2050 or 2060 we'll become carbon neutral. I mean, 2060 is far away. By that time, if the people continue to emit at the rate at which they are emitting, the world won't survive. So what are you going to do in the next five years? We want to know that the world wants to know that. What are you going to do in the next ten years? Uh, that's what the uh, what uh, the world wants to know. Now, uh, so that is something which we are waiting to hear. You had Kyoto places were made. You had Paris places were made. I don't uh, know as to how many of the countries have actually uh, achieved the places which they have made. Now, these are things which need to be looked upon and on which we want to hear. As as humanity want to hear this, that is one thing which I want to say. 20, 2060 sounds good, but it's just that it just sounds good. I mean, I would call it. I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but a pie in the sky. What we want to know is what will happen five years down the line. What will happen six years, uh, ten years down the line? When are you going to bring your emissions down to the world average or below the world average? Exactly. You see, the developed world has uh, occupied almost eighty percent of the carbon space already. Now, in order to uh, give space to others to develop, you have the whole of the African continent. You know, you have 800 million people who do not have access to electricity. It's not about us. I mean, we will achieve whatever has to be achieved, uh, has to be achieved because we get investments. But it's about those countries. Now, you can't say that you come to net zero. No, sorry. They have to develop. Now, that development will require consumption of steel in huge quantities. That development will require consumption of cement in huge quantities. They also want to build skyscrapers. They also want a higher level standard of living for their people. And you can't stop them because we have already occupied so much of carbon space. Now, I believe that it's important for all the developed countries to talk about not net zero, but about removing more carbon from the atmosphere than they are adding. Net negative is what they need to talk about. And they need to tell us as what they will do by 2030, by 2025. These are what the world is wanting. And you have to give space to these countries whose present per capita energy consumption is, let's say, one-fifth of the world average, whose present emissions is one-sixth of the world average. You need to give them space to develop. You need to understand that they will consume more and more steel, they'll make more steel. They'll consume more and more cement, they'll make more cement. They'll consume more and more plastics, they'll make more plastics. Now, all these will emit carbon. It will. And if you want them to go in for carbon capture, now has, uh, uh, that is another thing about technologies. Now, are these technologies proven? Now, you say that by 2050, you come net zero. How? I'm adding huge quantities of renewables, as I said. I mean, uh, we already, uh, our you know, non-fossil fuel capacity is already about 200 gigawatts. Um, what I'm worried about is storage. And storage is very expensive. Yes, Mr. That is, I, I have added storage to all the bids. I mean, most of the bids yes. which I have conducted yes. in the recent yes. past, yes. and I'll continue adding storage so as to bring the price Thank of storage you. down. Thank but it's very expensive. Yes. Now that is what need, you know we need to address. Thank you. The developed world needs to address exactly. as to how to bring the price of storage exactly. down. Exactly. Uh, you know, the um, pumped hydro is one option, but that is also expensive. Yes. Hydrogen is something which we are going to do. Thank you. And uh, you know our hydrogen bid for large scale, you know about uh, 2,000 megawatt uh, capacity of uh, uh, renewable you. energy, going to making hydrogen. I just finished. Uh, we are going to do, but hydrogen again is very expensive. How Thank you, you very much, Mr. Singh. Thank. 
So what you've heard there is India's Energy Minister talking about the actual cost of meeting these targets that everyone's talking about at the moment, but in a way that politicians in Australia never talk about, in a way that all the people who push this agenda never talk. There's an actual cost if you want, if you're gonna let other countries develop. Now we're gonna talk about this in a bit of detail, um, but we've run out of time on this uh, Channel 31 version of the show. So Channel 31 viewers, switch over to YouTube and continue watching us there as we continue on this. All right, so Jeremy, um, you found that clip. What's, mm -hmm. what's, um, what do you think is the significance of what the Indian minister is saying? This is a major intervention. Uh, you've got to remember, this is at the International Energy Agency uh, COP26 climate conference, which includes leaders all over the world, people like John Kerry and all the, all the different leaders pushing for this climate change action or zero net carbon action uh, of nations representing 80% of global emissions. So here he is on an international stage at a conference in front of all these people saying that, hang on, you've got to give people space to develop. You've got to give the developing nation space to develop, otherwise you're keeping them in permanent poverty. Now you've got the, the wealthy nations, well, they're already uh, at that limit of yeah. this carbon you know, footprint, if you like. Budget, uh, the carbon budget, right? The, the carbon budget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's all nonsense, to be honest. Look. Net zero is never going to happen. I think if, if most of these energy ministers were honest, they'd say it's not going to happen. It's pie in the sky stuff. As he said, it's pie said. in the sky. <laughs> but, but he actually said it's pie in the sky. Yeah. I don't think any energy minister who's serious about it worldwide ever thinks that we're ever going to get to net zero. That's why it's so far off into the future, 2050. Uh, China, you know, I heard China's presentation. Now, China, they go along with all their the talk, you know, we've got to have action on climate and all the rest. But at the end of the day, China's still building coal-fired power stations, but they have other solutions. They, they're looking at nuclear power, they're looking at hydro. Uh, but this is a huge signal to the whole world that uh, this is not good enough. You can't say people have got to be in poverty for the rest of their lives and destroy nations. And notice, Jeremy, how when someone like him is talking, who's trying to meet actual targets, he is being very frank about the cost of the technology. It's very, very expensive. Yet here in Australia, we've got people who are in the, the industry, right, vested interests who are spruikers. They're telling us every day how cheap this all is. It's so cheap. It's so cheap. It's so cheap. Physically, it cannot be cheap, right, by any measure of the technology. It cannot be. Oh, but they, they talk about the... Um, you know, the, the, the price per kilowatt hour in the national electricity market and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's uh, irrelevant to the actual physical cost of doing this. And that's what he's being very, very frank about. The other thing I want to point out that where he just totally blows apart what Western politicians are saying is that, as you said, if you, if you guys stick to your carbon budget, you, as you talk about a budget, you stick to that, well then you have to let Africa develop. And would we agree? Like, it would be immoral for Australians and Americans and Brits and Europeans to say, oh, we'll maintain our lifestyle. Those poor people in Africa cannot develop because they'll threaten the planet if they develop. Now, he's saying you have to let Africa develop. They're going to develop anyway. They're going to make the cement. They're going to make the steel. So that means if you want to stick to your carbon budget, you've got to go below zero. Not net zero. You've got to go below zero. Who is being honest in the Australian debate, Jeremy, and saying, oh, we're really going to go below zero? Nobody. Well, no, no one at all. And, and it, it gets worse because you've got the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank now looking at proposals to have debt swaps. Now, these poor nations, they've got a lot of debt. Yep. Uh, the World Bank and the IMF are looking at an agreement. Okay, well, 
we'll forgive your debt, but you have to go with these so-called green projects. Now, those green projects are designed to keep those countries forever underdeveloped. Now, underdeveloped means in poverty. Now, that is just simply unconscionable. Yeah. And um, what's the, what is it if, if, uh, if cement itself, just cement, were listed as a country, it's the third biggest emitter or the fourth yeah, biggest yeah, emitter? Yeah, yeah, It's an enormous amount of carbon dioxide coming out from cement. Now, the fact is, anyone who thinks there's not a debate about this and the science is settled doesn't even know anything about the science. Uh, there are numerous, thousands and thousands of science, very highly qualified professors who are saying, hang on, carbon dioxide levels could be double, triple, quadrupled. It would not make very much difference to the global temperature. Certainly, it's not going to be a climate crisis. It might raise it a little bit, but it's not going to be a crisis. And that just got completely lost in this whole of the debate. Now, there is a genuine issue of pollution. That's real. And China's addressing that. I mean, I've been to China a few years ago, and I was actually pleasantly surprised. I believe the pollution was worse a decade ago. But I went to Beijing, and, and I saw a blue sky. When I was in India 20 years ago, I couldn't see, couldn't see blue sky at all. It was, it was just smog everywhere. So, you know, pollution is a real issue, and... There are ways to get around it, but certainly not uh, wind, not solar. That, if you look at the energy that goes into all that and the mining that's going to be needed for the batteries and all the rest, that, that's going to be an environmental disaster. Well, let's move on to that now. Just, just to preface it by saying that, for, to, to explain to Australians, we've now got Scott Morrison running around saying every day, net zero, net zero, net zero. And look, let me be frank, he's such a US sicko fan that all he does is parrot the president of the time. So when Trump was in there, he's, he had his sceptics underwear on. Now that Biden's in there, and, the, and we're back to the climate change agenda coming out of the White House, Morrison's conforming to that. So he's parroting this thing. But what does it actually mean? Well, introduce your next video, Jeremy, because I think it's quite revealing. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, Senator Jared Rennick has done a fantastic job here. This, this is on the 25th of March, Senate estimates hearings... Uh, he was interviewing uh, the chief of the CSIRO and he asked uh, a lot of questions and he went through some of the atmospheric physics. But then now I want to play this clip here where he actually goes into batteries and the, the true cost in terms of the mining of those resources for the batteries. Professor Richard Harrington, uh, Head of Earth Sciences from the Natural History Museum of, of London, has said for the, for the UK to meet its UK electric car targets of 2050, they would need to produce just under two times the total of annual world cobalt production, nearly the entire world production of neodymium, three quarters of the world lithium production and at least half of the world's copper production. Now that's a hell of a lot of energy that's going to be required for batteries that mightn't last more than a decade for just one country, isn't it? Yeah, and we're worried about batteries too, Senator, because they, they're, they cost about three times more to recycle the lithium batteries than yep. the actual value of the, of the material. So we're very worried about that. It's kind of one of the reasons we leaned hard on hydrogen, because we think hydrogen yep. is actually a very attractive energy storage mechanism, and actually Australia could control that and actually build it here, rather than relying on rare earth metals that are um, coming from China or other countries. And so, Jeremy, that, that guy he's talking to, that is the head of the CSIRO admitting that's that. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's very significant uh, because here he is admitting that 
that really there, there's no economics there that you could justify using these batteries, bearing in mind that these batteries might only last about a decade, and then mm. what do you do? Are they going to be on the trash heap? Are they going to be just going to landfill? Economically, you're not going to be recycling them when they cost three times as much than the, the original lithium. Uh, now, he goes into hydrogen uh, as yeah. an attractive option. Now, but, that but the Indian <laughs> minister in the previous clip had talked about hydrogen too, but also commented that it's very expensive. That's exactly what I was going to say. Uh, so that's, that's really telling uh, because hydrogen is not an attractive option at all. It is expensive. If it was so cheap and attractive, we would have been using it years ago. Everyone's known about hydrogen. It's not something new. Uh, there are different ways to store it. Uh, trying to compress it in tanks is, is, is very, very uh, difficult and, and you're not going to get that same uh, density and range of, uh, you know, such as a tank of petrol and a tank of hydrogen, you're certainly not going to get the same range for a car. Um, <clears throat> and then you can have fuel cells, metal hydrides, but really uh, the scientists know this about hydrogen and it's not economic. Uh, the Indian Minister of Power, he, he made it very clear that these storage options, they're very expensive. So no way uh, hydrogen's the way to go. So Jeremy, um Given the concerns people have about carbon dioxide, though, it, it makes you wish that we had a form of electricity production that didn't emit carbon dioxide that could be built anywhere you wanted it in the world that is um, super safe, safe to thanks to technological advances um, and would tick all the boxes. It just makes you wish you had something like that, doesn't it? <laughs> well, of course, there's nuclear power and the latest generation of nuclear power is very, very safe, uh, virtually meltdown proof. Uh, for anyone who's worried about carbon dioxide, I can tell you uh, there's no reason to be worried about it. But there is concern about genuine pollution and nuclear will limit that. Uh, sure, uh, coal-fired power stations uh, do have some, some emissions of sulphur dioxide and other, other emissions that is certainly undesirable. Nuclear doesn't produce any of that. Uh, so the latest technology is very, very safe, but also you can reprocess the spent fuel so that you don't have a nuclear waste issue. Uh, that's already been done, by the way, in France. They, they do reprocessing of spent nuclear fuel. That's a known technology. It's been known for decades. Yep. Yep. If we do that, nuclear is the way to go. And that way you have that very high energy flux density, or energy density as well, where <clears throat> you can generate the same amount of power in a tiny little area of land, whereas if you had to generate that same power with wind turbines, you'd have to cover virtually the entire country with wind turbines. Chopping up birds and, and using a lot of resources, those wind turbines, they, yeah, yeah. they require a lot of concrete and steel, and it's not carbon zero if, if you no. think it is. No. All right, Jeremy, thanks very much. Very enlightening as usual when you come on. Um, Jeremy's our resident engineer, as I sometimes call him. Um, so... No, people need to think, think this through. Don't get persuaded by the hype. And then, like I said, refer back to the, the earlier subject. Very serious issue. Call in and get a copy of our publication for more or get on our website and look at our latest press release, which, which links to it. We have to call this out when we see it. So thanks for joining us today, Jeremy. Thanks to the viewers for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Thanks, Robbie.